Score, the podcast. The only show taking you inside the studios of the world's most celebrated composers and musicians. Ah, welcome to Score, the podcast. I'm Kenny Holmes, joined by the legend himself, Mr. Robert Kraft. Oh, that's so kind. Thank you so much. Uh, I think you are a legend as well, and... Um, if I can quote you from the documentary, maybe I'm a legend that's trying to become legendary or wait, what did you say? A legend that is becoming more legendary. I'm not a legend though. I'll, I'm that's not what I said that. about Hans Zimmer. Yeah. And, um, I like to say what John Powell once described me as he said, Robert is a musician masquerading as an executive. <laughs> <laughs> you fooled us all. Yeah. He, he, uh, he kind of nailed it. But we have a great show coming up. Finally, we got Laura Karpman. Yeah, uh, Oscar nominated. Oscar nominated for American Fiction with an amazing score, um, capping her five Emmys. And she's uh, just having an incredible year. I've seen a number of her shows uh, in the past Lovecraft Country. Yeah, that was Black great. And very Nat- musical. Love yeah. that show. She did a show at Fox called Black Nativity, a film, um, The Marvels. Uh, she's been so busy. I I was at Tribeca in the fall and saw the Rock Hudson documentary which she scored, which was also incredible. She's just really busy and really important to our community because she has taken the initiative to start the Alliance for Women Composers mm-hmm. at a time that it's so supportive of composers and uh, just a really interesting background. Bit and... of a fashionista too, I might say, because I I do a number of the red carpets. And is she sponsored by Gucci? Because she's all decked out. I've seen some really cool outfits of hers. That's and very I'm excited to see her Academy fit. That is very interesting because uh, I think she's wearing Gucci glasses in our i wish i i couldn't make it for the interview um so i'm excited to listen to it myself as well but uh, that's great yeah it's a long time coming i know we tried to get her on for the last couple years and timing didn't work out and then we were in an off season which we don't have anymore which is nice so we can do these things during uh award season yeah score the podcast was caught up in the um composer focused podcast strike you know, th- the three of us <laughs> yes. went on strike for uh, in solidarity with other composer-focused podcasts, of which we really have no competition. But we had to strike for um, to double our salaries. Yeah, and also uh, relieve the schedule a little bit. We wanted to make it a little more flexible, right? Exactly right. But um, I do get a chance to talk to Laura about my very, very favorite jazz composer which is Mm. interesting for me because I'm a huge Thelonious Monk fan and um, American fiction quotes uh, Monk in in Laura's own way because of the character's name is Thelonious. And so there's some wonderful uh, cues that are kind of homages and it just was so much fun to talk to her about Monk. Um, Kenny, before we introduce the episode couple big events coming up. Um, the Guild of Music Supervisors is having its award show in the yeah. first week of March. Mm-hmm. March 3rd, um, I think. Yeah, those are incredible events. Um, I've been to a couple. I met Siddhartha Kosla at one, who is uh, only murders in this building. And it's just a really good event. Bert Bachrock was given an award one night, and it was just a cool experience of him coming out and getting the award. Also, uh, there's that little gold statue they're giving out. Yeah. Uh, March 11th. In fact, voting's just about to start. Very exciting. And so, and our guest, who we're about to toss to this interview, is a nominee and uh, I think she has a shot, man. It's one of those I, years where I do too. You you just never know. There's there's been some surprises. There's a lot of just heavy leaning Oppenheimer, but you yep. just never know with the Oscars lately. 
I told Laura to get her speech ready. So you never know, and you never, you do know. never know with these things. So we're gonna get lucky, and um, well, let's get to it. I'm excited to hear it. Uh, thanks for tuning in to score the podcast. We're gonna send it over now to Robert interviewing Oscar nominee Laura Cartman. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All good? All good. We go. I'm happy to have as our guest my friend for many years in many circumstances, Laura Karpman, who has been my governor of the music branch, my teacher in some ways, well, when I was at Berkeley Valencia, you were the teacher of the film music track, kind of accidentally on purpose, because I think you were an emergency fix to a problem. Is that correct? You were, you were my colleague. Yes, yes, I didn't teach you. I we always were, think of you we, as my teacher. Oh, well, I don't know about that. We were colleagues for sure. Yeah. Um, Another episode in our life was that event, which uh, I never really f knew how you were kind of the solution to the problem. Did they call you one day and say, can you teach a spring semester at Berkeley starting tomorrow? <laughs> well, you know, things, uh, the, I, I'm used to pivoting. What can I tell you? I love that. Being used to pivoting is critical, and clearly you've done that throughout your entire career, um, which I've just had a Laura Karpman festival for the last few weeks, ah. getting getting ready for this. It's been really interesting, and Laura, I have to say, it is so first class. Thank the you. Music, the music that you have composed, um, kind of endlessly interesting and musical. That's very, really, very kind. Thank really, you. Really musical. I mean, of course, you're now being acknowledged with an Academy Award nomination in addition to, is it five Emmys? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, really overdue this kind of acknowledgement of your work, uh, something we can maybe hear from you about why it's overdue. But uh, I think we should... I'd like to know, I mean, I've heard all your interviews, and I know you've been asked the same questions about American fiction a lot. Um, I must say that I'm curious about, first of all, you realize probably not that I am the Thelonious Monk fan of life. That I did not know. He's changed my life. He changed my life in his death, which was... Uh, February seventeenth, nineteen eighty-two. So it's we, we just yeah. It just we four, we. I, yeah. I noticed it this weekend. Tell tell us how he changed your life. That's interesting. That's, that's very. Let's nice. hear from you. Oh, that's very funny. Well, <laughs> this is going to be brief, but um, I discovered Monk uh, through an album that somebody in my band brought to a rehearsal and played the vinyl album of Monk Train live at the Five Spot. I was right. a maybe a sophomore in college and I was listening to Steely Dan and Rolling Stones and Muddy Waters and had very limited understanding of Monk and heard that record and heard the song Ruby My Dear and oh. was con converted completely. Uh, I then met Panonica when I went to New York. That's the patroness, the mm. Baroness Panonica von Konigswarter who was Monk's patroness. He lived at her house. Wow, and, that I didn't know. Oh, we met, and um, she introduced me to the family. I became close to the family, and then had a really ridiculous 
absolutely wonderful, inspired moment. Which, and we'll we'll end with this. Um, I went to Monk's funeral mm. on February twentieth, which is exactly forty oh. years ago, two years ago today. Mm-hmm. It was in St. Peter's Church in Manhattan. Mm. Uh, I'd never seen Monk perform. I'd never met him. Um, I went to his funeral, and walking back through Central Park late that afternoon, I composed a poem in my head, The Night That Monk Returned to Heaven, Mm. thinking that tonight Monk is going back to heaven. Mm. I wrote it as a song. It was cut by the Manhattan Transfer, and it supported me for a couple years because it was the B-side of their biggest record ever. Ever and I had just fallen out of my publishing deal. My career was in the shitters, and I they they put the weirdest song they've ever recorded on the back of their big hit record wow. single, and it Monk took care of me. Yeah, I mean that's that's an amazing story, and I I didn't know that. And I it, Ruby, my dear, was kind of my. First thought, actually, when I first met with the team on American Fiction, I took in Ruby, my dear, and said, look, maybe we can make this work as a theme. Um, And I tried it, actually. I demoed it for them along with the Monk theme um, when I first played the music. And because I thought it might be able to work for a theme for Monk. Hmm. Um, But I think ultimately we went with an original tune mostly because – it had to do so many things, you know, the music yeah. had to do so many things during the course of the, and, and, and no, I mean, like Ruby, my dear would have been a great family theme maybe, but maybe not as great for the craggy, the craggier aspects of Monk. I don't know. I, I, but, but I thought about that. And, and as I said, I took it into them. Actually, when I met with them, I brought in the real book and I opened it up to Ruby, my dear, and I sang it for them. And I said, you know, this might be something that we can play with. So it's uh I love Monk too, and um, he's so complicated uh, and simple simultaneously, which is what's so kind of crazy about his compositions and piano playing. And and for me also, Monk, like the the right hand and the left hand um, are really different. Like the way he plays his left hand and the way he plays his right hand, it's almost like two pianists. And um, I, I mean, I, I actually talked to Percival Everett about this, thinking it was on purpose, and I don't think it was. He, he said, it, uh, Percival, who wrote the book Erasure, said that he chose Monk for the title because his father made him listen to Bud Powell and Thelonious Monk all, alternately, and he had to identify who was doing what, which mm. seems pretty easy to me, like actually yeah. to differentiate between. But 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 mostly, I mean, this is a podcast for musicians, composers, I guess, mostly. Yes. I think I think it's because of the way he plays his left hand, and so you know, Monk's left hand is often, usually blocky and simple. Like like if if you hear jazz chords, you know, like here, I'll just get up. We're gonna, I'm going to walk over. I'll Fabulous. Come. If if you hear, you know, like you hear. A lot of people do these kinds of things where, you know, you've got like an F minor, you know, these kind of rich, rich chords. But Monk would all, and then a, then like a really that active, was Monk esque, right? So he would have a super super active right hand that was almost like out of like an Art Tatum tradition, or though you know it. Even if you listen to Oscar Peterson, I mean, it's it's it, like he makes more mistakes than Peterson, but it's active, right? It's super active. But that left hand is super stable on seventh chords, or, or like open sevenths without even filling in the chord. So anyway, that's a, a long explanation. But basically the Monk theme that I wrote has that, you know, the with those kind of open sevenths like like monk would do and that goes to an, a, another place so it can become a love theme and become all the things that it needs to do for the movie but i thought a lot about monk and it's funny because when i was studying piano um i said to my piano teacher i think monk plays super clean and 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 she said no i don't i don't see it that she she heard it as 
dirty in a way, you know, because of the mistakes. Um, but there's a clarity to his musical thought, I think, which is really, um, really amazing and, and very influential on me and so many other people, too. You realize, I mean, I'm listening to every syllable because maybe my favorite topic in life, everything you just said, um, makes me think his left hand is, uh, you know, James P. Johnson's stride was a huge thing and his right hand... Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a topic maybe for another day. Um, I may be in the cult of there are no mistakes in any Thelonious Monk. No, I agree. And um, and the thing about jazz, I'll tell you a funny story. The other night um, we played uh, the uh, family theme for the ACLU 100 Years Centennial. I saw that, yep. So, you know, I haven't played piano in public for a really long time. I mean, that's one thing to record, right? You know, you you can do it over, you can do two bars at a time, you can do whatever. <laughs> but playing in public, you know, is a big deal. And we've done a couple of performances of this thing. We would do the family theme, and then literally I would get up from the piano and let somebody come in who's got, like, you know, better fingers to do the bossa nova, <laughs> which comes in, in, into, um, uh, in, in the movie, and we can talk about that later. But the other night, I decided I would play the whole thing. And, um, and mm. I pushed myself. And um, I was out there with Elena Penderhues, who's this... The flautist? Yes. And she's like, she's 28 years old. She's a genius musician. We're training her here to be a film composer. She will take the world by storm. She's so, you know, she, she says, I, I, I got to go for 24 hours. And I said, where are you going? She said, I just got to play with Herbie in Paris. I'll be back, though, on Monday. It's like, Elena, like, you don't have to, like, fly to Europe for 24 hours. It's all good. But anyway, so I played with her and this wonderful um, young bass player, Jermaine Hill, who's 23 years old, just, like, amazing, also touring. Um, and it was just, it, before we got on, I, I was nervous, you know, and I said, <laughs> if I screw up, we'll just make it work, right? And Elena said, that's what Herbie says. He said, there are no wrong notes. You just, like, you lean into it if you screw up. So we did okay. I love that. Well, first of all, jazz is wrong and strong. Mm -hmm. um, there's that great Herbie Hancock YouTube video, which has been sent to me a dozen times, of him on his maybe his first gig with Miles, he played something completely incorrect. and That's, out of, the, fa that's the famous story. Right. And yeah. Miles yeah. goes with it. Yeah. Um, but I was just thinking that, that the Monk thing, it's not, it's that I'm as fascinated by whatever he, whether it was a mistake or not, and it might have been, it's the clunkiness of allowing any of us listening and playing to say, I never thought that color was either permitted, was correct, and it's really interesting hearing your score, particularly the cue, is it Monk is with Patrice? Yeah. Where you might have come, I'm really sensitive to anybody playing kind of Monk, mm -hmm. and that particular cue is as close to Monk-esque it's not aping monk. It's your original thing, but it's got right. a really genuine and authentic monk thing in it that I was so impressed with. I'm so allergic to the kind of ersatz monk thing, and I thought your versions and that cue in particular, I thought, I can live with this. This is really monk. Well, we didn't try to do Monk. You know, the thing about the score is that you've seen the film. Have you seen the film? I have. Yeah. So the film is like, it goes to a lot of different places. So it needs a film mm -hmm. score. And the it was tempted with all classic jazz, which if you love jazz, oh. which apparently you do, you know, you sit down and you hear these tunes and it feels so good. And it feels so good to hear that music and see, see it connected with images on the screen. I mean, in some ways it's what we all dream of. Huh. Um, but it didn't work as a score because of course, like, you know, 
many, many temps, um, but certainly when you're using, you know, needle drops in that way, you can't get in and you can't get out of it, right? It just mm -hmm. starts and then it ends. And so the the, the film at that point, um, even though I, I knew what an absolutely spectacular film it was from the first second I saw it in Rough Cut, um, it needed to have a score that could work within the context of a film score, but mm. still strongly allude to all of these influences, you know? So that, I mean, I think that that's why I was a good call for this because, uh, you know, I'm an experienced film composer. I know how to do that. I understand jazz. I know how to do that, but I also know how to, you know, combine them together and, and create something that can be, have the fluidity of a, um, of a film score, but have the authenticity of something that feels like actual jazz. And that was the, that was the deal, you know, with this mm. particular one, it had to, it had to sit in that right place. But I don't think we tried to like, there was no point in which I tried to copy Monk. Um, yeah. You know, I had this incredible experience once like long, long time ago, I was working on a television movie and, you know, and much of my career was in television movies, the first part of it. And um, this guy, this director had temp, he said there was no money or not enough. And he said, we're going to do it all solo piano. And I said, cool. And he had temp this one thing with, um, with Debussy. And, um, but he wanted to be jazzier. And so I started playing it and I thought, oh my God, this feels like Bill Evans, you know, that like this, like thinking about jazz through the, through the lens of French music, you know, um, was like revelatory for me. It's like, it feels like it, that was like his direct influence were like those, those, um, those WC solo piano preludes, you know, there's so much of his playing and his harmonic language that comes out of that. So I think that, 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 what I've learned and what's so beautiful about being a, um, you know, a media composer is that, you know, you listen to other people's music and then you filter it through your own brain and then it mm. takes on like its own thing. And it sometimes teaches you about the music, you know, and of course and, and, it, and always it, teaches it. it teaches you about like, like where it came from, because then it's going through, you know, you're, you're listening to something, you, you know, it's a temp, you know, the filmmaker kind of, kind of likes it, but you're trying to come up with something that's unique and right for the scene. And then suddenly it's like, oh my God, I never realized, I didn't make that connection between Bill Evans and Debussy, but it was so that's strong brilliant, in that moment. That's brilliant, and I totally feel it. Um, and two of my favorites. You've actually, it's something that, it's, it's a little granular, but I'd love to hear about your thoughts and or kind of a, a greater thought about. I, I'm actually, it's funny you mention it. I'm a complete jazzer. I have been, a, I mean, since that day I heard Ruby, my dear, yeah. I went on such a deep dive and I've always been, as anybody who knows me, just completely bebop, hard bop, I mean, forever. Um, I learned that jazz. And I, I didn't know this until I started to do film music. Films are kind of allergic to jazz in a way that I didn't that I didn't realize that if I went swinging over a scene and oh no, it has to be film music, and that kind of makes it sound like it's a very fine line between being jazzy in a score and making it and sort of diminishing the power of film music. You threaded it perfectly. But I wondered when you heard those temp cues, did you have any moment of either, oh shit, this is, this is a hard assignment to keep it jazzy and make film music? Just because I've always known that if it's, if it, you know, an inch is a mile in making it jazzy film music. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It 
can make it too upbeat, too funny, too kind of cheap. And you, in your process, did you ever find out you were too jazzy, too filmic? How did you find that middle ground? Well, I mean, of course, there's a massively rich legacy of jazz and film music. I mean, you know, uh, Henry Mancini, uh, Andre Previn, Michelle yeah. Legrand, uh, you know. Quincy. Uh, Quincy. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the, I'm not the first person to do this. And I think jazz, influ you know, infuses Terrence Blanchard's music, mm -hmm. not just because he's a musician, but it's just the way he hears things, you know. Um I, I no, I didn't. I, I didn't have any problem with that. I knew that was my task, and so um, it was actually a fairly natural um, thing for me to do. Uh, the, the hardest part was figuring out how to record it, frankly, mm. because um, Cord is a first-time director, and all the demos I felt really needed to sound good. Because with jazz, it's very, very hard to demo that stuff, and and you know, so I recorded. I started recording. I didn't play anything for them that didn't have recorded elements in it. With you playing piano? With me playing piano, and I had um, a sax player. I had Elaine, uh, uh, sorry, Elena um, playing flute. And so, you know, I would uh, use sampled bass and sampled drums. All They would grab drums from other things that I had done in the past to be replaced later. But... Um, but I, I knew that it had to sound right. So I think that was actually a really, really good decision on my part mm, um, because it, it, it made it like immediately understandable to them whether it was going to work or not. And to me, you know, it was like, okay, you know, blow a solo over this. And, <laughs> but since I had total isolation, I could pick a bar. You know, and and eventually that's kind of what I did, or I would have something someplace and I might use it as an echo someplace else. So the hardest part was kind of recording everybody separately and then bringing it together and making it feel like everybody was together as an ensemble and, and, and having that that groove. And Elena and I did record together a lot. So we did have like a lot of the key um, key elements you know, simultaneously, and especially with the family theme stuff, which is really tough because um, a family theme is like, but it's never quite together on purpose because families, well, you know. Um, you think? <laughs> yeah, hard, not, not hard to figure that one out. But um, so so she and I would play together and and have that simultaneously. But but really everybody but the strings was recorded here and in people's you know studios and um, it was it was done that way and it like the whole time we were saying, gosh, should we just put everybody in the room together and go record it later? And then you know we just decided that everything sounded good and we were okay. And this was a process that had worked. Record and Hilda, um, the uh, the editor, who was amazing, um, and it it wound up working beautifully with dialogue because then I could wind up really using, um, especially um, uh, Jeffrey Wright's voice and Erica Alexander, who play Monk and Coraline, as kind of instruments within the ensemble. And so you know he'll say something, and then there'll be a pause. So there's a moment for a little moment of saxophone, and then she'll say something, and then there's a moment for the conclusion. So. You know, it was designed that way and then edited that way to really make it work within the, within the film, which is why I think the film, the score is so tightly, you know, tied to the film. It's really um, a hand in a tight-fitting glove. Are you able to use those, or were you able to use those demos? Any of them? Did they All of fall them. in love? Oh, fabulous. Yeah. No, all of them. I mean, there were cues that certainly got rejected, as they do in you know in a process. But, um, but yeah, I mean, everything we used. And sometimes I would go back and re-record something if it didn't. You know, if then I found out, oh my God, I needed a better solo between bar one and three, and I wasn't crazy about what was there. Then I would go back and and send it out again and say, hey, can you redo this and listen to this, or this has changed, or let's do this in you know with a breathier, uh, more Stan Getz style sax or. You know, so so it, it was um, it was really a process of doing that. But you know what? I never find 
that recording is ever a mistake. It's always the right thing to do. And mm. it, it, it does nothing but help you and help your, your, the people you're working with. And things always find a home, even if they don't in that project. I think that's so true. And the, for all the listeners that learn from these conversations, good demos may be the headline. Um, and uh, directors and producers respond to what they hear. And if, I mean, I can't imagine some of the music that you presented to them, you know, like a kind of synth flute or saxophone would just. Can't do it harsh the vibe to death they you can't do know. it you, you can't, can't do, do it. it you can't yeah. do it and and especially with this kind of music absolutely it's got you know. a flow yeah and feel good um i i saw this morning of course that cord won the bafta for and it was a, i don't know if you saw the article this morning about how american fiction stands out as culturally and sociologically unique among these films this year. And I think it is. I think it is. I mean, I think that um, American Fiction is an extraordinary film. I knew it the moment I saw it. I knew it before I saw it when I read the book in preparation for my first meeting. Um, it has a conversation about, you know, about race, about um queerness, about families, about all mm. of it that is so important and so significant and done with such humor and done with love. And I think Cord is an extraordinary filmmaker, um, a superb writer, a great leader. Uh, I think it's really a page turn in, in American cinema. I do. I think it's a really important movie that we'll look back on uh, and say how important it was um, to have a conversation and to have it in this way. I think that it also is a comment, of course, on art and capitalism. Oh, of course. And, and it, it's, her, it's, it's Issa it, Rae's comment yeah, that yeah. in that conversation about, hey, I worked at a publishing company. I know what works. Yeah. It's, and it's, a, and I, it, you know, it's so funny because I was, I was composing the score for the Marvels at exactly the same time that I was doing this. Oh, my this. God. And it was so funny because there I was working on something that's like super commercial and, and, you know, and, and, I mean, I, I mean, we can get into all of that if you want, but you know, there's this. Everybody carves their path through this world as an artist, and everybody decides, you know, what will work for them as a human being. And when I started out, um, I thought I would be a professor and write, mm -hmm. you know, new music in New York City, and uh, and I that would be my life, and. Um, and then I found that it didn't fit me so well as a person and as a as an artist, and that this film music thing was a better fit. Um, and it has been, you know, for a lot of reasons. But a lot of it, I've thought for years about, because for a lot of years, you know, many many people said, "Oh, you should be more commercial. It needs to sound more like this. It needs to sound mm -hmm. more like that." Um, and I've always kind of marched a certain path of maximalism. You know, I've never been like a simple composer. It's never been like one note at a time, um, except when it has been, you know. <laughs> and um, and it's, it's it, I've, I've thought a lot about these questions that Monk struggles with as an artist. And I think he does struggle with them, you know. Mm. I think he wouldn't have written the book. If he if he hadn't struggled with um, with it, I think he. I don't know. We we all feel different. You know, I've talked to Jeffrey about it. I've talked to Court about it. We've had many discussions about it. But for those of you who are composers, do you want to know the funniest thing? The award that he wins at the end looks exactly like a BMI award. Like he oh, holds no. the yes. thing up, yep. and when we were in my studio, it was like Court, look, there's the. Uh, there's the thing, but we talked a lot about whether he really wanted that award, which is, you know, perfect for award season. I mean, here we are, we're all, you know, out there, we're campaigning, we really want to win this thing. Mm -hmm. um, and um, and what does it mean? What does it all mean? What does an award mean, you know? And I think actually just rolling it back a, a minute, I'd like to hear about that pivot using your operative word in New York City that made you think, because there's a lot of 
similarity here. There was a moment for me in New York as well, and L.A. very shockingly beckoned. I, but you were from Los Angeles. But was there a moment in New York where film music occurred to you, where being a professor thought and being in that world was not maybe the way? What was the pivot? Well, I grew up out here, but I ran screaming. And I went to boarding school on the East Coast and, and Which one? you know, to Phillips Andover. And then I thought, you know, uh, this is where I want to be. This is the best place on earth, which it in many ways is, you know. And um, and I wanted to live my life there. And I was um, – I had finished my doctorate. And I was assisting Milton Babbitt, who was my teacher. Come on. In Princeton? No, at, at in New York at Juilliard. So I was assistant at Juilliard. And then, uh, you know, I had five freelance jobs, which everybody did in New York. Everybody still does. You know, I had I was assisting a pianist. I was like her personal assistant. And I, I edited eighth grade music textbooks at Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston. And I, I taught for Lincoln Center Institute, which was you would go out to public schools. And, I you know, I did my commissions. I did everything. And I would play jazz a little bit here and there. And, you know, and uh, basically one day Milton Babbitt called me on the phone and he said, I have an opportunity for you, which I thought he was going to recommend me for a, um, a teaching job, which is what, you know, he would do for his students. Mm. And at that point, the Sundance Institute was um, by invitation only and David Newman was running it. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, he said, I want to recommend you to Sundance Institute. And I went out there and I was like the New York new music person. And um, I was there. um as I said, David was running it. Shirley Walker was there, but Shirley was there as Dawn's wife, not as a teacher. Because, of course, nobody saw her as that. She was completely invisible. And um, she um, mentored me. Hmm. And um, Fabulous. And I wrote, like, really weird-ass music for the movies that we were doing, like 12-tone, like, you know. And it was um, an actually interesting conversation where, do you remember Stan Melander? He was my agent. Okay. So we my were at- My very first agent. Mine too. And we were at Sundance and um, there were all these questions and, you know, everybody, I was there with, I don't know how many other, maybe eight guys or something. And I was very, very used to being the only woman in the room. I was the only woman in composition at Juilliard. I was the only woman there. Was I, when I went to Tanglewood, I was the only woman. It was mm-hmm. oh, it was the regular. It was normal. Um, and uh, but I didn't think anything of it at that point in my life. You know, um, the beauty of youth is that you go forward with um, with with hope and aspirations and and with this wonderful feeling that all the generations before you have completed the work that needs to be done in order for you to take your rightful place in the world. Hmm. So there I was ready to take my rightful place in the world. And there was this conversation and um, everybody was asking questions and there was a, 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 like a gendered nature to the dialogue. And again, I like, I didn't think of myself as a feminist. Like, I didn't think I needed that. It was just, it was absolutely, it was the 80s. We'd done that all in the 70s. Billie Jean King won the match. Everything was okay. And um, I didn't, afterwards, Stan came up to me and said, you didn't ask any questions. And I said, I just, like, I just don't feel that there's room for me here. That's what I said. Mm. And I had thought that it would be a really good place for me. And I really was excited by composing music to film but when i heard people talking about who was doing what and what the opportunities were it's like you know what i think i'm just gonna go back to new york um i don't think this is gonna work for me Mm. and he said and it wasn't like i wasn't like pissed or anything i was just like okay you know this is that's cool this is just not not gonna work and he said come to la give me a call and so i came and um and uh, he, uh, he took me on. So I, I gave it a year. I said, I'm going to give it one year and see what happens. If I don't Did get anything. Did you live in your natal home? I lived. <laughs> that, what, this is, uh, now I am actually revealing things that I have never revealed. Yay, headline for the podcast. Here you go. So this house that I am living in now, that I have lived in for many, many years. I've was, been there. Uh, was a um, was a beach house that my parents bought 
for like $100,000 in 1973. And... Um, so it just kind of was here, and the downstairs was rented out, and the upstairs was open. My dad said, just come to L.A., live in the upstairs. When you can afford to pay rent, you'll pay rent. And um, so I didn't have um, a financial pressure on me, which was absolutely like – I couldn't have done it without that. Like literally, there, there would have been no way that I could have done it without that gift from my father. And so I lived up there for a couple of years without paying rent. I was able to get my career going, and then eventually I bought the um, the upstairs from him, and then eventually I got the downstairs. Uh, I don't think you've been here since we redid the downstairs. I don't know, but um, the the entire downstairs where I'm sitting now is now a recording studio, and, oh, and Nor- no. Nora, Nora Benny and I live upstairs, so it's like a a two mom shop, you know, with the with like the living above the grocery store, you know, and that's. That's what it is. But, yeah, so I did come back and lived here, which, you know, it was not unpleasant at all because it's right on the ocean, and, and I've lived here for all those years. The big question is, did Stan Melander get you a gig? No, um, but they were there to do the work that needed to be done when mm-hmm. I got the gigs, which is, of course, what agents do, you know? Yep. Um, That's and perfect. I think. Yeah, and I had I, think- the, I had the same experience with Stan. I actually was offered a gig, but he was there, and yeah. I said, uh, "What do I tell him?" Yeah, yeah. And so I think you know people have this real misunderstanding that agents get you work, and and they rarely, really do. Um, it's hard to do that. You have to build your own relationships, and then of course, what's nice and when it works well is if is if you're going out for something, and you have a nice relationship. Uh, with somebody, uh, but maybe, you know, you don't have a relationship with the studio or with the producers and the agents happen to know those people, then then you can go at something from two angles and, and that, yes. that helps to make things happen. That's just great. There's so much I want to ask. There's two things I wanted to just talk about. You are very generous as a collaborator and you have collaborated with some of my favorite musicians. Not only Patrice Russian, but Raphael Sadiq, mm-hmm. Tony, Tony, Tony. Yep. And um, I know for the Carnegie Hall event, you, you had the Roots and I did. Nana Freelon and, and and Jesse Norman. Do they? I. I'm often surprised when you go to these folks that we all have such respect for and their musicality and their surprisingly excited to be involved in film music did you had Raphael and you worked together before and how did that happen well it was a film um that was uh called Black Nativity it was uh it was based on a a short story by Langston Hughes who had someone who's someone poetry I knew very well because I'd worked on that the piece Ask Your Mama for Carnegie Hall and Casey I believe it was a searchlight movie under my watch but was done so off my watch that we didn't enter, you know, Searchlight had a funny way of saying, don't, please don't pay attention to this. We're going to do a lot of stuff on the cheap, not entirely above board. So I know that Black Nativity was during my tenure at Fox, but I had very little to do with it. I think Danielle, actually, I think Danielle Danielle was there at that time. took care of it. So, um, so at, at, because no, it was after you had left. Because was it, it was, afterwards? it was, then it was after, in development. When you I know was what? Yep. It was it was after Berkeley Valencia, and you had left Fox by then. I just it left. Was, right. It was literally You're that summer right. after. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, Casey is somebody that I knew for a long time, as she works regularly with Terrence Blanchard. Terrence was unavailable to do the score, um, so I reached out and I said, I'd "Love to do it." And, and Raphael had done the songs, and she said, "Well." you know, how would you feel about collaborating with Raphael Sadiq? And I said, I would feel great about that. Let's, <laughs> let's, let's do it. And he hadn't done a film score, and he was interested in playing with it. And so we had a beautiful collaboration, and I met one of my absolute – I mean, he's my brother. I met my sister, Tara Stinson, who was his collaborator, who's, who's just like a knockout songwriter. Um, and so we made the best friends on that project. Um, Terry Shropshire is the editor, and of course Casey and I cemented our friendship very deeply. 
Um, and uh, we made this this film that, you know, I really, really would love to see the director's cut restored and that. And in fact, we're showing it. Um, America Cinematheque, uh, American Cinematheque is doing a retrospective of my work and we're doing wow. Black Nativity on Saturday. And so if you guys want to come out and see it, I think we'll probably go there Saturday at, at 1 p.m. So this Saturday coming Yeah, up? I think it's this Saturday. And I Fabulous. think it's one. I think it's one. And it's a really terrific movie. It was La La Land before La La Land. And if it got restored to its original place, it would, it would, I mean, it still will blow your socks off, but it really was wacky and wonderful. But anyway, um, so yeah, I met Raphael then. And we really, um, the great thing of, you know, you called me a generous collaborator. And it's funny because it doesn't feel generous to me. It, it, there's so much that I can learn from Raphael and the way that he hears music and listens to music. And I know that he felt he learned a lot from me. And so we were really, um, really in great sympathy, you know, in doing this. And we did mm. that. And then we did a couple of TV shows together. We did Underground and Lovecraft Country and some um, some some movies. Uh, we did a Charles Stone movie and a couple of other things. And, and you know, he he has done stuff on his own. And now, you know, so we – I don't know that we'll work together again, but not for any reason other than we're just kind of doing our own thing now. But um, but I love him, and he's a very, very dear buddy of mine and an absolute fantastic musician. And I learned he's a so lot. Cool. I learned a lot from him about – how he writes, you know, it's really different from my process, and I and I loved it. Can you share? I'd be curious. Yeah. He he sits down and he picks up an instrument, and the instrument itself speaks to him. So he would leave some stuff here, and then I would pick some stuff up every once in a while, like just because I thought he might find it fun. And then he'll sit down at the piano, and it feels different from his piano, and he would just start to play, and it's like you know, press record and let's see what we can grab. But also, you know, in this idea about like things not being perfect, um, I think a lot of what Raphael does is he'll play and play and play and then he'll grab a loop. Hmm. So he'll grab a loop out of two bars that feel good to him or four bars that feel good to him. And so that comes out of culling through a tremendous amount of, of material and, um, I, I don't know. I, I just found it really interesting. Yeah, it's so great. And it's funny, the perfection thing is interesting because in a Zen calligrapher's world, if you and your intention is pure or authentic or accurate, whatever, even if there's a brushstroke that might be, you know, an error, if your intention and your motivation is focused that's the way it's supposed to be before we wrap up laura i think we need to acknowledge i mean there's a lot of the cues that you've written that i've been listening to which i made notes on it's like uh, kind of i wish i'd written this um heart and vision from scratch was a real favorite and oh from scratch oh yeah yep. yeah 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 i just love it and atticus returns from lovecraft county i mean these were these are kind of amazing compositions I thank really, you very much really loved it um listen to darben's theme from the marvels if you want to oh, hear okay. how you sneak jazz in huh. to a film score Without anybody knowing it's jazz, oh, that's listen good. to that cue. Okay. Note taken. Um, your alliance for women film composers is an yes. important, a really essential part of the development of our industry and our community. Um, what is coming up that we should look for? Uh, any initiatives, any events that you'd like to share? Um, yeah, I you know from from the alliance standpoint, um, I don't really know. Uh, it, I mean, I've, I'm serving on the board, but really more in an advisory capacity. Um, okay. There's a new generation of women who are taking Thanks it over. Thanks to you. But, but I can tell you that um, I I did a panel, a women's panel at Santa Barbara, um, where I announced that it's time to end incrementalism, and I want to see uh, fifty fifty by twenty thirty. Why do we have to wait that long? 
Because I think it'll take it, it. It has taken us ten years to get from two percent of the top two hundred fifty box office films to fourteen percent last year, which is our biggest year. And I'd like not to wait that long, but I want it done by twenty thirty. We yeah. need to be at gender parity by twenty thirty. It's enough, and let's do it. Gender parity and racial parity, and all composers. I love that. Just, just composers. That's all. That's all that we are not composers with an adjective before. And uh, I think we're both. I think I our identity, that. I think our de- our identity, it, it, our identity defines um it defines who we are as human beings and as people. I don't think it's something to run away from, but I think that it, that it it does not have to be genre defined. In other words, our identity does not necessarily not necessarily translate into musical genre. I think that's the distinction that's important. That is just perfectly said, and reminds me of my and uh, perfect full circle. I was in a Berkeley Valencia class, and the assignment had been write an action cue mm-hmm. ten years ago, and there was one cue. Then they played them all back to me, and there was one cue that just blew my mind. It was so, it could have, I thought, is Alan Silvestri in the room? It was so professional. It was so full-on action music at a first class. And I thought, wow, who is this? And Amy Doherty raises her hand from the back of the room, and I thought, this is a career that goes all the way. I just hope for you that when you get to Hollywood, you are accepted as a composer, full stop. And she has been. And, I and she has a, a she room. has a, a baby now with with and she has with, a baby with Jordan, one of the other yep. students, which is so sweet. Another student and, of mine. Yeah, he was yeah. there too. Yeah, so I'm I'm proud of I'm proud of both of them, and I'm glad. Yeah, I'm she glad was done your both. student that that. Year, yeah, she was. Or, no, she wasn't my private student, um, yep. but she was, you know, I, I, she was my student to an extent, um, as they all were. But I had her in class, and I'm, I'm thrilled for her. I'm thrilled for Carla Petula, who was there, too, who just yeah. won a Grammy for her great. work. It was a, it was a really great class um, of really interesting musicians. And again, Avia Swami, who has been a, a huge collaborator of mine and helped me create the sound for Ms. Marvel, um, you know, she was also from uh, from Berkeley, Valencia, and she's someone I follow closely. Is just this, you know, incredible singer, composer, artist, and it was a neat it was a neat um, group of of people that very first year that I was there, and I was glad to have done it, glad to have been there. And you realize that the listeners from Berkeley, Valencia, that hear this are going to be calling you instantly. Yeah, well, to say, hey, by the way, isn't that what we all do? Thank you, Laura Karpman, my for pleasure. honoring us with your wisdom and your music. It's really been great to connect. And I, in closing, I just hope that you have your speech ready. Do you have, oh. you know, thank who you're going to thank and well, keeping it brief, but <laughs> I don't on know. the on point before they hit the who playoff knows, music. Who, who knows what's going to happen, but um, thank you for that wish. And, and, and I, you know, listen, there all the other nominees are so excellent we were just talking about it this morning I'm, I'm just thrilled to be nominated i'm it was it's beyond my wildest dreams uh seriously and uh you know but yes i do want to go for it i'd love to win. this I is your first Oscar nomination of many yes. no well thanks thank thanks you so much thanks robert thank we'll you. talk soon we will i hope